This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development, I'm Brian Thompson. Sadly, my co-host Michelle Tang won't be joining us for episode 45, but we wish her well and look forward to seeing her back here in the studio for episode 46. Also, we'd like to give a special thank you to our listeners in Nigeria, Sri Lanka and the Netherlands. Thanks to you guys for all your help in moving us up the charts on the news commentary podcast stats. Much, much appreciated. Do get in touch whenever you can. Anyway, in Podcast 45, we're looking at small island developing states, or SIDS as they're also known, and the issues around climate change. Why is climate change so important to SIDS? The answer is simple. These small nations are among the most vulnerable to climate change impacts, which will become critical if no appropriate action is taken. Many islands are threatened by rising sea levels, Another growing concern is the increasing number and severity of extreme weather events, with all they entail in terms of loss of life, damage to property and infrastructure. All of this can easily cripple small economies. SIDS are among the parties least responsible for climate change, but are very dependent on other countries ensuring that significant action is taken to cut greenhouse gas emissions. In episode 45, we're talking to Oliver Page, IFAD's regional climate specialist covering the Caribbean and the many small island developing states that are located there. Also, we'll be looking at IFAD projects in the Philippines, Haiti and Tonga. In other news, in episode 45, July sees the UN's Food Systems Summit stock take taking place in Rome. We'll be talking to Stefanos Foccia, director of the UN Food Systems Summit Coordination Hub. Then we head back to hear from Max Cotton in the third part of our series, where we see how he's coping with the self-sufficient lifestyle on his smallholding in the UK. And finally, we rejoin our ongoing series with the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development. Today, we're speaking with Nikita Ereskin-Hamill, Deputy Director of Agriculture and Food Systems for Global Affairs Canada. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcasts at ifad.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. Coming up, we speak SIDS with Oliver. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson. Small island developing states, or SIDS, often lie very close to sea level and face particular challenges when it comes to their agricultural and fishery sectors. Oliver Page is IFAD's climate and environment specialist for the Latin America and Caribbean region. Our reporter, Nor Bonner, first asked, what are the climate impacts to SIDS in his region? Small island development states are some of the most vulnerable states uh, to climate change, uh, even though their contribution to greenhouse gas emissions is very, very low. Uh, they're in a position of very high vulnerability. Uh, this is because, um, of course, they're located in the ocean. They're very susceptible to the sea level rise, um, to extreme events such as droughts, 
or hurricanes and cyclones, um, subject to coastal erosion, um, acidification of oceans. It's important to know that um, small island development states have uh, 28 times more ocean uh, within their constituencies than, than, uh, than land. So they're mostly ocean-based economies. So any changes that are happening in the ocean due to climate change are likely to severely impact SIDS. Uh, so, um, for example, ocean is, is heating at a, at a much uh, higher rate than, uh, than the Earth is due to climate change. So we have um, increasing temperature of the oceans, increasing acidification, and this really changes uh, the biodiversity and the carrying capacity of the ocean. Uh, so for coastal communities who mostly depend on, on fishing uh, for their livelihoods, this means uh, extreme, extreme changes and reductions in their capacity uh, to make a living uh, through their fishing practices. Likewise, um, SIDS are also highly dependent on um, tourism for the economies, uh, and we see great impacts uh, to coastal infrastructure, uh, great impacts to, to erosion in, in beaches, uh, bleaching of coral reefs, um, which is killing off approximately 70 to 90% of the world's uh, coral. So there's a combination of factors that mean that SIDS are highly, highly vulnerable to climate change and have a very low capacity to respond. Well, obviously, and, and, and the fact that's perhaps most known to everybody is a sea level rise. Uh, several SIDS, uh, not so much in, 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 in the Caribbean, but mostly in the Pacific, are very, very low uh, in their overall altitude above the ocean. So any increase in um, sea level means that uh, up to you know 50 percent if not all of their land is is subject to being flooded or to having saline intrusion in their soils and uh, water resources which essentially kills off the capacity of the islands to be able to produce uh, sustainable food so we have a combination of factors in SIDS that make them extremely vulnerable to climate change with a very low capacity to respond to the pressures that are uh, brought on by increasing temperatures. And that's why there's several ongoing actions that are specifically pushed by SIDS in order to respond to the climate crisis. One of them is maintaining temperature increase to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above uh, pre-industrial levels. And this number, 1.5 degrees Celsius, is extremely important to SIDS. Um, other countries have uh, pushed for no more than two degree increase in temperature, but two degrees is too much for SIDS because this would mean that there would be much stronger impacts of climate change. And, and in, in summary, it would mean that many SIDS would basically not be viable as countries with such a, such a temperature increase. So one of the actions that's being pushed forward by SIDS is trying to maintain the level of temperature increase to 1.5 degrees. The other one is called the Samoa Pathway. And the Samoa Pathway requests uh, development finance, climate finance, to have more accelerated and streamlined access pathways for SIDS. 
recognizing that the students are at high risk, that their capacities are differentiated to respond to the climate change problem. It's important um, that the international community recognizes this and takes action appropriately. Along those lines, IFAD has its own CIS strategy, and IFAD strategy uh, is aligned to the, to the Samoa pathway and is seeking to improve access of IFAD resources to SIDS through enhanced resource mobilization, both within and beyond IFAD, moving from a country to a regional focus and improving our in-country presence and policy engagement. Thanks to Oliver. He'll be back later in the programme when he talks about what farmers are doing to cope with these threats. But before that, we talk about fish coral, a project in the Philippines that aims to reduce poverty in coastal communities. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson. Fish Coral is a project in the Philippines that aims to reduce poverty in coastal communities. Jessica Munoz is the project coordinator with the government's Bureau of Fisheries and Aquatic Resources. The project sets out to reduce poverty, improve food and nutrition security, and increase household incomes. It also works to improve climate resilience in these coastal communities. Our reporter, Nor Bonner, asked, how much time do you think we have to adapt our coast and infrastructure to climate change? In the Philippines, I think I cannot just say a specific uh, day or date because all lo- local government units have different kind of strategies. So they are not on the same page, should I say. Uh, some are more advanced than others. Uh, others are a little bit slow because it all depends on the capability also of individuals uh, managing the, the climate change and the funding allocated for them. So it depends on the, on the capability of individuals or local government units in charge of climate change adaptation. How has the Fish Coral Project reduced poverty in poor coastal communities, improved food and nutrition security, and increased household incomes in the Philippines? Uh, the purpose of the project basically is for the reduction of poverty along coastal areas by introducing uh, interventions that pertain to livelihoods, development of livelihoods, and improvement of the coastal resources management. So these are the two anchors of the project. We have developed livelihood projects that would increase the income of households so that they, the, the incomes will you know, uh, add to the total income of the family that will sustain them for education, food, and other basic uh, requirements of the family. So basically, these are in in the in the final uh, report that we have. There's a reduction of of poverty, that meaning an increase in the income of fishers in our uh, project areas. In terms of nutrition, this goes without saying that if you have an increased uh, income, you are able to buy more nutritious food. You are able to send your children to school. 
Um, that would mean a a higher, you know, higher livelihood accommodation. So they are able to pay for your basic needs. And how did the Fish Coral Project impact community climate resilience? And how did they deal with it? We have assisted the local government units and the beneficiaries in construction of watchtowers uh, instead of light materials we, they have been using concrete materials which are resilient to typhoons and storm surge uh, in terms of the livelihood we have assisted them in the the establishment of solar dryers environment friendly solar dryers so that they will have an improved quality of their seaweeds If you have improved quality of seaweed, you command high price. And we have these cages. Instead of light materials, there are some innovations in terms of the submersible fish cages for milkfish, for bangus. And then there's also the PCICs, the Philippine Crop Insurance Company. So that they will be covered when there's typhoon, when there's red tide. There are uh, products or uh, marine resources that are covered within PCIC. It's like an insurance crop. This covers also fisheries. Thank you. And finally, are training programs and awareness campaigns included in the project? Can you develop this and share with us some outcomes? Yes, uh, we have uh, good uh, materials. We have produced good materials for, for dissemination. We have a knowledge implementation plan, which, we, which the project developed. We have assisted our beneficiaries in, in developing materials at the ground level. We have a very good example of a curriculum that the Potato Center, International Potato Center, assisted us. It's the Aqua-based business school for fisheries. This is a good material. Others are now using it. It's like a training of individuals, of, of fisher folk, of housewives, of fishers. And the end product is a development of a product, a marine product, a fisher's product for the market. So it's a, it's a process-oriented uh, training. It takes like sometimes to three months because it will depend upon the availability of fishers or the students who are going, who will go through the process. And yes, we can share some materials. Uh, in fact, even if the project has been closed since 2022, we still connect. I still have, have Uh, emails from other uh, offices asking for materials and we give them it's free uh, as long as the the project is acknowledged that was jessica munoz national project coordinator of fisheries talking to our reporter nor bonner you can find out more about this project by going to www.ifad.org up next we're back with oliver page This is Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson. Back now to Oliver Page, our climate and environment specialist, Talking SIDS. 
IFAD works in coastal areas with smallholder farmers and fishing communities to increase resilience and respond to the climate change challenge. Noor Bonner continues her conversation with Oliver. Well, uh, IFAD has a strong record of, of, of working with, uh, with SIDS, and this is being enhanced by IFAD's strategy, which uh, seeks to focus on enhanced uh, resource mobilization and improved in-country presence in, in the region. So our work in coastal communities focuses on working with uh, smallholder farmers or fishing communities in um, increasing the resilience and responding to, to the climate change challenge. One of the approaches that we try to promote in small island states, since, since they're so small and their economies are so small, there's an approach that's called ridge to reef, in which we try to work from the top of the hills towards the ocean in uh, ensuring an integrated ecosystem management, because anything that happens in any landscape of these islands will have an impact further downstream. So on the mainland, we focus on uh, climate smart agriculture, sustainable production, management of uh, forest resources and natural landscape management to avoid erosion and to avoid land degradation. And then working towards the coast, we are trying to work with the coastal communities in erosion and soil erosion techniques, uh, preservation and maintenance of, of sustainable fishing practices. Also very important to maintain mangroves. Mangroves are a very significant natural protection from uh, extreme weather events, in particular uh, hurricanes and cyclones. So working with communities in, in productive and sustainable management of mangroves, as I mentioned, sustainable fishing practices. So, so it's very important to maintain this integrated approach in SIDS in which people and communities recognize that their activities are not isolated, but whatever happens in one part of the island is likely to affect the communities downstream and vice versa. Another important aspect is that we, we, we have to realize that these economies are quite isolated and quite vulnerable. So already they're relatively small economies that can't develop economies of scale. They're quite difficult to reach in, at many points. Um, uh, and therefore, when, when a climate event occurs, such as a hurricane, they, they're extremely isolated and they're extremely volatile in terms of food availability. So one of the key actions that we're trying to, to support is the idea of food sovereignty, or at least to have enough domestic food production to be able to maintain a competitive domestic production in times of crisis and not only rely on food imports, uh, which is largely the case in many of these countries today. Um, so it's a combination of actions that we're working on. Uh, we're working in Grenada, with an important uh, program on climate smart agriculture. We're working in uh, Haiti, which is the first project that we're implementing in Latin America, focused entirely on coastal communities. Uh, we have strong projects on uh, agroforestry and ecosystem management in Cuba, in the Dominican Republic. Our first uh, green climate fund project has been in Belize, uh, which, even though it's a continental country, it's considered a SIDS 
because it shares many many characteristics with uh, with SID countries. Uh, so recognizing the vulnerability of a country of that, those characteristics, we focused our first Green Climate Fund investment in that country. Uh, we're also working strongly in Guyana in a program that also strengthens food security and nutrition. So we have a broad array of actions going on in the Caribbean SIDS. We have a senior country director based in uh, Haiti that's overlooking the whole SIDS portfolio. And we're seeking to strengthen our engagement both through EFAD's own resources and uh, seeking external sources of finance such as climate finance. Thanks to Oliver Page. He'll be back later in the programme to talk about how active IFAD is with farmers in coastal communities. Coming up later in Podcast 45, we have an update on the UN's Food System Summit stocktake taking place in July. Plus, we take a trip back to the farm of Max Cotton, where he's been living on what he grows alone for over six months. And we have the latest report from the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development with Nikita Erickson-Hamill, Deputy Director of Agriculture and Food Systems for Global Affairs Canada. Make sure you also check out our other podcast. In Podcast 42, we talked innovations in agriculture. And in Podcast 43, we spoke to the boss at the UN's Convention on Biological Diversity with a special report on the Duchy of Cornwall's eco-credentials in the UK. And in Podcast 44, we found out what can be done to stem water scarcity in the Near East and North Africa. And next month, in Podcast 46, we'll be talking about the power of remittances to promote development in rural communities. Now, though, in Podcast 45, we're heading over to Haiti. This is Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson. Haiti is the poorest country in the Latin America and Caribbean region. Amongst the major environmental threats Haiti is facing is land degradation, soil erosion, deforestation and overfishing. This is all being exacerbated by climate change, which is causing temperatures to rise, rainfall to drop and an increase in extreme weather events. The Inclusive Blue Economy Project is located in Haiti's Three Bays Protected Area in the North and Northeast Departments. The population here is facing extreme poverty and malnutrition. Amongst the causes are weak governance, a lack of surveillance of the protected area, and a lack of involvement of the local population in protecting the environment. IFAD's Paolo Silveri explains what the project is trying to do, explaining what sort of innovative measures are being put in place. Well, measures are many. We First, we, we designed the project. And that's what happened in 2021. <clears throat> the project was approved by the board at the end of the year, and then it the financing uh, line became effective uh, with signing uh, in uh, in the course of the first semester of last year. We've had uh, some delays in uh, hitting the ground uh, in the second semester. There were um, there was increased violence and instability in Haiti, as you know, and uh, all UN international staff not dealing with emergencies, was evacuated in September. And uh, I only uh, managed to come back in uh, the end of February this year. Therefore, we had some delays. But basically, to address your question, you know, what 
uh, we intend to do uh, to ensure that you know the project will uh, will be implemented as effectively as as country conditions allow for. Uh, in the first place, the decentralized implementation arrangements will will ensure that. So, although uh, we are uh, nationally speaking in a in a political impasse with the very difficult conditions to make decisions at the central level and go ahead with anything, basically, the decentralized nature of this project will uh, will allow us to transfer uh, resources directly to the territory so that local actors and stakeholders will, will take these resources and implement them in spite of central difficulties. The manuals of procedures are... Uh, being finalized, and uh, we are ensuring that they respect the project in its design structure, so they respect project objectives. This is another measure we're taking to to ensure um, that the project will actually run as it was uh, conceived. Thirdly, again mention the private sector engagement as a measure to ensure uh, successful implementation. The Foundation for ProBeam is engaged and uh, it took a while and it took a number of efforts to uh, convince uh, our public counterparts to uh, to accept that uh, in other words to accept that a private stakeholder was also part of the deal and uh, they're not entirely convinced yet but uh, this is what the financing agreement uh, foresees and Foprobeam as private member of the of the alliance is very active in promoting uh, that things actually hit the ground in the field. And lastly, I would mention the community pressure on government. Uh, communities have been consulted at project design. They have been visited. They know that a project coming has been approved and they're waiting and they're asking. And uh, so pressure from uh, communities uh, on the ground is, is another uh, measure that will uh, um, ensure that the project will uh, will be implemented as it was conceived, obviously uh, with all the limits that the country imposes, but it will be implemented uh, probably on a, um, on a flexible timeline, but it will be implemented indeed. And what are the results so far for the communities involved? Well, the results in the northeast, uh, uh, it's, they are yet to come in the sense that uh, the project is, uh, is uh, finalizing its manuals of procedure. It is setting up its structure. It is completing its uh, coordination units. We are finalizing the manuals of procedure. So we are still in the final stages of uh, preparation of the implementation phase, and therefore I, I can address that question for the integrated uh, blue economy project uh, probably um, at the end of the year or at the beginning of the next one. However, uh, we have results for the for the program as a whole. We have other projects in Haiti, the PTAG project with the with the Inter-American Development Bank, uh, the Puraco Emergency Project, this one and uh, and more uh, being designed. Therefore. What the program addresses and obtains in terms of results is an increased food security in a, in a country where food insecurity concerns one citizen out of two. 
So uh, basically over 5 million people are food insecure at this point in time. Therefore, food security is key. And, and it will be the focus of the next project, by the way. And also uh, increase country-based uh, agriculture and, and uh, livestock production and, and fisheries, of course, uh, because the country at the moment covers less than half of its uh, food requirements and it has to import most of the food it consumes whereas Haiti used to be a food and nut exporter until not long ago therefore uh, we're trying we are striving to uh, support uh, government efforts in recovering this uh, historic capacity of Haiti to uh, cover its food needs and be in a position to export uh, its uh, accident. So uh, this is what the program targets and uh, what, what the program is working on. And we do this in cooperation with the rest of the UN system and with the other IFIs. I mentioned the Inter-American Development Bank, but we also coordinate our actions with the World Bank to ensure complementarity of interventions. And, and last but not least, with the Rome-based agencies, so FAO and WFP, we have uh, a strong uh, coordination with the, the, the other two RBAs, uh, and uh, we work together also uh, as uh, leaders of the Secretariat of the National Commission for, for Food Security that is working, among other things, on the preparation to the Food Summit uh, follow-up meeting that will take place in Rome uh, later this year, in July this year. So results are there in terms of uh, increased food security and country-based agricultural production, and also in terms of policy engagement and cooperation with the, the rest of the international system to support uh, national food security. That was Paolo Silveri talking to Noor Bonner, you can find out more about the Inclusive Blue Economy project by going to www.ifad.org. You're listening to Podcast 45 of Farms, Food, Future with me, Brian Thompson. Back now to Oliver Page, explaining what sort of things are being done to protect communities on small island developing states and ensure the long-term viability of these communities. The viability of farming communities in SIDS is greatly related to two aspects, I would say. One, their resilience to climate vulnerability and their ability to be competitive for food production in the small economies that they operate in. And, and there's a lot of action to be done in both. As I mentioned previously, SIDS have largely focused on food imports for their food security and this places them in a very vulnerable situation because they're subject to uh, price volatility from several factors. The, the expense, uh, for example, the recent shifts in fuel prices have greatly impacted SIDS uh, in their import capacity. So SIDS are extremely subject to volatility in prices such as fuel, which increases the cost of imports. Uh, you know, the current inflation also has had great impact on their capacity to produce food. So it's extremely important that agriculture, which has been kind of uh, undervalued in SIDS recently, uh, increases its productivity, 
increases its investment. And this requires technical assistance. It requires the, the provision of inputs. It, prov- it requires the rehabilitation of several farming areas which have been degraded. Uh, and these are all things that EFAC can support with. And then, uh, as I mentioned, the shift towards uh, resilient and climate-smart agriculture. We need to acknowledge that we need to be much more efficient in the way we produce, especially with water resources. We need to make uh, agricultural systems resilient by ensuring that we protect forests, that we protect uh, the coast, that we maintain mangroves and rehabilitate degraded landscapes. All of these are um, actions that can ensure that uh, systems, productive systems are more resilient and are less damaged when when the big events hit. Of course, erosion and saline intrusion are large problems that we need to deal with. And many times people think that the only way to deal with sea level rise is through large infrastructure. Um, But we believe that working with nature-based solutions is... uh, probably a more efficient and effective way of doing this and a combination of infrastructure with nature-based solutions can be uh, a very viable way of maintaining coastal communities. So we we have to acknowledge that these communities are at high risk, uh, that SIDS will continue to be the most vulnerable countries to climate change, and that we need to change our way of of approaching sustainable development, our way of supporting these communities, understanding that um, with the high levels of risk that they face, they will need more support. And they will need more support through investment, through technical assistance, through capacity building, and uh, engaging them in regional dialogues, in policy dialogues that help us take their agenda forward. Thanks to Oliver Page. You can find out more about any of the projects mentioned in this podcast by going to www.ifad.org. This is Farms Food Future. How can the simple act of carving wood provide an answer to the problems facing the community on Eua Island in the South Pacific? This small island is part of the archipelago of 172 coral and volcanic islands which make up Tonga. But its picturesque location hides some unpleasant facts. Eua is also home to high unemployment, with climate change negatively affecting the fragile balance of natural resources. Locals on the island are learning to carve out canoes and the benefits are many. It helps the environment, provides employment to young islanders and gives them a cost-effective way of catching fish. The canoe-building programme is run by the Mordi Tonga Trust over a number of islands and is funded by IFAD and the Tongan government. As we find out, not only does fishing provide revenue for Tongan communities, but it also has health benefits. Many Tongan islands are plagued by obesity, with over 90% of the population being classed as overweight. Crystal Ake is with the Mordi Tonga Trust, and she told me more. Uh, Tonga has a huge health crisis that centers around non-communicable diseases. So we have the one of the most highest rates of obesity in the world, with a staggering number of up to 90% of our Tongan adults being overweight. Uh, 60% are obese. of the population have type 2 diabetes. A large case of morbidity rates 
are also identified as preventable deaths, uh, of which can be traced back to the underlying uh, nutrition issues. So this really demonstrates the severity of nutrition crisis uh, that's happening here in Tonga. Uh, our traditional diets have seen sudden shift towards a more westernized diet. So that means there's a lot of highly processed uh, foods in our diets that contains very much, uh, very little nutrients, if at all, that is very much needed for human development. Um, and because of our high dependency on imported foods, it's very, very worrying for health officials. And in light of the pandemic, it's an issue that we are trying to solve. Why has the, the Modi Tonga Trust encouraged islanders on Ewa to start building canoes themselves? All the interventions that we have on the ground have to link back to community development plans. We were very fortunate enough to have had uh, the world-renowned uh, master carver, Mr. Sonny Tirone Poloto in Tonga, and it was his willingness and assistance uh, to carry out these traditional carving trainings that we were able to implement them to the islands of Ewa, Apai, and Baba. And so the communities identified in their CDPs, there were several needs that intersected with the training. For example, the island of Ewa uh, identified the need to develop activities and skills for youth at risk because there were a lot of uh, high school dropouts. And also they wanted to create job opportunities for the unemployed men. So there were interests uh, from Ewa to have these skills of canoe carving so that the youth can replicate these works for sports activities and to reestablish traditional sports such as canoe races that Tongans um, had engaged in in the past. They also saw an opportunity where the skills can also be created uh, for ecotourism operators. Uh, for the islands of Wabao and Habai, they identified the same priorities as Eua, but also included the need to address how the communities have very little uh, fishing equipment. So naturally, as a result, these canoes meet very important development needs, such as food and nutrition security, natural resource management, and of course, climate adaptation. So how has the, the project been going and, and what do you expect, um, how do you expect it to develop in the future? The training has been very beneficial in different aspects for various reasons uh, to Ewa, Habai, and Baba'u. Uh, I'd be remiss to not include that these islands are vastly different in geological characteristics. Uh, Ewa is a very elevated island with very few low-lying coastal points. Habai islands are very low-lying islands, widely dispersed, save for a few that are highly elevated. And Babat was generally highly elevated with a few communities in low-lying areas, but nowhere as near um, as Hapai and mainland Tongataku. So the training was very important for Ewa target communities because of the acquisition of traditional knowledge and skills. And the same can be said for Babatu. Hapai is a fishing community. Um, and so the skills and the actual canoes were very valuable to them to continue providing food for the households. Uh, income generation opportunities, and as well as traveling. Um, during the training, the Habai participants revealed that the canoes will help revive traditional artisanal fishing methods, such as octopus luring that was slowly fading out. 
the canoes aren't only opportunities for fishing to supply sustenance or generate income. It also can be used by the Hapai community for traveling short distances from island to island where possible and can even travel out to larger ships. Um, one of the participants also said that it's also a great way for the community members to stay fit as the canoes require full body mechanics to operate unlike uh, modern small boats that are fitted with motors. That was Crystal Arke of the Mordi Tonga Trust, and you can find out more about them at Tonga as one word, dot T-O. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson. The UN Food System Stocktaking Moment will take place in Rome from the 24th to the 26th of July at the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. The high-level meeting will be the first global follow-up to the 2021 Food Systems Summit. Back then, more than 50,000 people from 193 countries, including 77 heads of state, committed to accelerate and deepen the transformative power of food systems for the full realisation of all 17 Sustainable Development Goals. Stephanus Fuchu is Director of the UN Food Systems Coordination Hub. Norbonna asked what the Food Systems Summit tried to do in its initial meeting. Um, I think it, the Food Systems Summit tried to do a couple of things. Um, and, and let me just mention the, what I consider the most important of them. One is that it, it established an understanding that we cannot talk about acceleration of the 2030 agenda and achievement of the sustainable development goals without transforming our food systems. And that's extremely important because the summit really highlighted that if we manage to make our food systems more sustainable and more resilient, this will be a giant step on achieving the 2030 agenda. The second, um, I think, very important thing is to really establish the understanding that when we talk about food systems, it's a multi-sectoral, multi-stakeholder approach. Um, it's, it's not that we are talking only about agriculture. It's not talking about only about food production. But it's about a system that starts the moment that a farmer takes some decisions on what and how to grow up. The moment that the government takes some decision on, on where to put their money and their support up to the moment that the consumer decides how to use a specific product coming from um, food and, and agriculture and even what's happened, what happens after this. So the systems approach was extremely important and, and the links of the production and consumption of food and the agriculture with the health issues, with sustainability issues, with climate, with environment, extremely important. And I think the third, and I, and I would say a very big achievement was that um, after these two big messages were established there, we saw that countries committed to change their food systems, to transform their food systems. And that was not a commitment that it was only on, on the world, but we see that countries have submitted pathways and they have put national teams that they are following up with these food system transformations. Thank you very much. And 
How have things changed in terms of food systems over the past two years and how you have done? So the, the food systems, they are, they are facing for many years, for decades, I would say, the impacts of multiple crises. Uh, one big crisis is the climate crisis and, and food systems are really affected by the climate crisis a lot. We see very big changes on the productivity of agriculture in different parts of the world, which is um, decreasing because of the impacts of climate. The second, the second crisis is, of course, the biodiversity crisis. Um, and here, the agriculture and the food systems are partially responsible for the impact on, on the biodiversity, but actually they are, they are paying the price because with reduced biodiversity, the agroecosystems uh, are also becoming less productive. And of course, we had the uh, continuous uh, impact with the, with the different crises. And now we see that in the last two years, uh, what I've mentioned in terms of climate, pressure, biodiversity, and crisis and, and conflicts are intensifying. So coupled with the very big increase on, on the food prices that we, we see the last uh, one and a half to two years, this has created an environment that made some countries to say, should we really prioritize the sustainability of transformation right now, or we, we want to see how we will solve our short-term products? And the answer to this is that, yes, prioritizing the sustainable transformation of food systems is still the way to go because this will probably make the food systems more resilient for the future. So when the crisis will continue to happen, the food systems could respond better. And why is it important and what does the future hold? I think it's important because, you know, food and the production of, of, production of food is essential for, for life. Um, we are not talking about the luxury here. We are, we are talking about um, one of the most basic needs after breathing for people. So we really need to understand that um, by making the food systems more sustainable and more resilient, it's, it will require to change a lot of aspects of our development paradigm. If, if we do want the, the food systems to become more resilient and more sustainable, we need to see our energy systems. We need to see um, our transport systems. We need to see our production systems. So it is extremely important because the, the agro-food systems are really a very big nexus for all our development paradigm. What the future holds, we really don't know. I mean, we do want to hope and, and we hope, and that's something we want to reaffirm uh, in 24 to 26 of July when we'll have the food system stop taking moment here in Rome, we want to reaffirm that, yes, we are all committed, countries, stakeholders, the UN, to make the food systems more resilient and sustainable. And if this happens, the future will be much better. Uh, will it happen? Uh, we, we have to be positive, and I want to be positive and, and, and optimist, but we need to uh, identify, uh, we need to accept also that we are really running out of time. So, it's a transformation that should have started years, if not decades ago. Uh, there, there are some early signs that the transformation is starting, but we need a lot of acceleration and we really need to put a lot of thought, a lot of resources, and to change the way that we are approaching our food systems. That was Stefanos Fotu talking to our reporter, Noor Bonner. 
And in episode 48, we'll be coming back to the UN Food Systems Summit stop date to see how it all actually went. You can find out more at un.org. This is Farms Food Future and I'm Brian Thompson. It's now time to catch up with my ex-colleague, the BBC's ex-parliamentary correspondent, Max Cotton. As we told you back in February, he has since moved on to live in the rural southwest of England, near Glastonbury. He has a near two-hectare smallholding. Back in September, he kicked off his latest project to live on only what he grows, except for tap water and salt. We went back to check in with Max as he was entering the halfway stage in his voyage of self-sufficiency. Max, thank you very much for joining us again on Farms Food Future. We're now it's moving to, to springtime. How are things going as we move into this period of the year? It's a funny time. Spring in the Northern Hemisphere is just a, it's a very peculiar time because one is under enormous pressure to sort of get going as quickly as possible. But you, there's always a, several false starts and uh, you want to get seeds in the ground and things growing as quickly as possible. But then you have a cold snap and lots of frosts and it's always very difficult. So it's a bit of a balancing act as to when to get going. But once you do get going in the springtime, uh, it's not possible to sort of work fast enough. Um, that's how kind of the, the, the sp- farming spring for, for gardeners and, and food growers uh, is. Um, I am also uh, at the the very beginning of what's known as the hungry gap because you're reaching the stage where lots of your stored food is running out and still there isn't anything to harvest. And it ha- tends to be the end of March, the, the whole of April and the very beginning of May uh, when there's really not very much to eat and uh, it's called the hungry gap. And although I've been mitigating against the hungry gap and in terms of planning my self-sufficient year, it is going to bite quite hard because I haven't got as much wheat as I was hoping for uh, because um, it all got rolled on by the badgers. I've run out of potatoes, uh, stored potatoes from last year. So things are going to get a little bit tricky. And um, I've been eating a lot of dairy produce quite a lot of meat and uh, been and a, a few remaining vegetables looking back over the experience so far max what would you say are the best and worst things you've found out since starting this the best thing without any doubt is i've loved the process i've felt even though i'm on my own i've felt part of of, of something and i've felt it's almost a demonstration what I've been doing. It's almost a protest saying, no, I'm not going to just accept um, the the way food is provided for us here in Britain. I'm going to try and provide it for myself. I've loved that, that protest, that process. And I've been amazingly surprised at how untempted I've felt by by distractions, uh, people eating uh, all sorts of things, takeaway food and drinking all sorts of different things, uh, going to McDonald's. I've I've been um, surprised at how I've not been distracted and I've been very, very determined. 
I have had a few um a few slight hiccups. I did I haven't been a hundred and hundred percent food self sufficient because I was visiting someone's garden and they had some beautiful raspberries and without thinking about it I picked a raspberry and put it in my mouth and ate it without thinking, oh my goodness, this isn't one of my raspberries. So I did do that and some cornflakes that my daughter poured back into the milk jug actually made it into some cheese that I made. <laughs> but apart from that, I've been 100% food self-sufficient. The whole the process has been great and I've really enjoyed it. What I've found very hard and very, very frustrating is I wish I'd had a whole year of doing this before I'd, 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 uh, I'd started. I'd like to have had a practice year um, so I could iron out some of my mistakes uh, because they have been quite, they've been many. All of my squashes um, and um, uh, those those sort of things, pumpkins, I stored in a shed and they got very, very badly frosted and so all rotted out. Um, my wheat, I said, I got rolled on by badgers out of electric fence that off. All sorts of things that I I do differently if I had had a, a practice year. But uh, I can't think of anything awful. It's it's quite hard uh, going anywhere because you've got to take everything with you. You've got to take water and and uh, nettle tea and a thermos and anything you want to eat. So if I'm taking my son to university or something, uh, driving him to university, I've got to take everything, absolutely everything with me because I can't buy food or anything like that on the way. So it just needs a bit of, that. Just needs a bit of planning. Now, one thing that made me think of you is when I saw all the stories about the um, supermarket fruit and veg shortages in the UK. What's your take on all of that? Well, I didn't. It was, I didn't have any fruit and vegetable shortages, <laughs> and I was able to um, uh, enjoy a little bit of Schadenfreude. Um, I have to say, the idea that Britain can't cope without tomatoes, peppers and cucumbers in February or March, I find just absolutely ridiculous. The idea that our pampered, you know, our pampered lives mean that there's sort of indignant outrage that we're unable to buy tomatoes in February. You know, we shouldn't be eating fresh tomatoes in February, as far as I'm concerned, end of. You know, I, I ate some tomatoes yesterday. They were frozen tomatoes, which I harvested last year. I made I made some tomato soup. That's the tomatoes we should be um, we should be consuming. And the idea that people are indignant um, because they they can't buy peppers and and tomatoes uh, at this the, the, in, in in the winter, I I find just ridiculous. Now, going self sufficient isn't viable for everyone. What do you think people should learn from you at least? Well, I think that people could learn that it's tremendous fun uh, producing your own food, uh, even on a tiny scale, if you've just got a windowsill to grow a few things in, um, or, uh, herbs or, or whatever. I'd actually contest that not everyone can do it. I think an enormous number of people could be, could be getting towards self-sufficiency. If you've got a city maisonette with a small garden that you could have a greenhouse in, then you'll have an enormous 
quantity of food from that. If you've got a little allotment, like lots of people in in uh, English English cities have, um, with, you know, a little patch of ground. Uh, somewhere by the side of a railway where you can go along and grow vegetables, you can grow an enormous amount of food. If you add to that buying a sack of wheat, if you visit the countryside and maybe buying a pig from the local market and getting your local butcher to chop it up, you, if you want to be, you can be quite clearly self-sufficient or getting on for being self-sufficient in food without having a farm at all and living in the middle of a city. And I think that I hope that from my in my experience that uh, with plenty of willpower and determination uh, we can be much much more self-sufficient than we are i think people feel that they're sort of victims somehow of multinational companies big supermarkets food conglomerates and um, there's nothing that they can do about it well I hope that people will realise that there is something people can do about it, and there's an enormous amount of fun and pleasure to be derived from um, from uh, a little bit of battling against the system. Max, thank you very much. That was Max Cotton, who went on to tell me that he's been having regular health checks and he's fit as a fiddle on his self-sufficient diet with low cholesterol and no weight loss so far must be something to do with all the full-fat dairy that he's consuming. We'll be catching up as he comes to the end of his self-sufficient year in the autumn. But if you want to check out how he's doing between now and then, you can follow his YouTube channel, Maxwell's, with an apostrophe S, Rant. Welcome to our ongoing series from the Global Donor Platform, for Rural Development, which is currently hosted by IFAD. In episode 45, we're going to hear from leaders in the donor world about the issues that matter to them. The platform brings together donors that believe the best way to tackle global poverty and hunger is to develop agriculture, reshape food systems and invest in rural communities. Its network of 40 influential donors includes international development agencies, financial institutions, intergovernmental organisations and foundations. Today we speak with Nikita Eriksson-Hamill, Deputy Director of Agriculture and Food Systems for Global Affairs Canada. Nikita has been active in the Global Donor Platform for many years and joins us from Ottawa, Canada. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nikita. So we start all our podcast segments for the platform out with the same question. What are the issues that currently keep you up at night? Thank you, Monique. Well, we know that global hunger has been increasing since 2015, and it's been particularly affected in the past several years with the economic disruptions from the pandemic and from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The cumulative impacts from these events and that continued pressure and stress from climate change has led to a dramatic increase in food prices. And these food prices are one of the most difficult challenges for the development community to address. And it's a major concern how these food prices are felt most strongly by the poorest and the most vulnerable populations, in particular, you know, women and girls. The poor and vulnerable can spend up to 70, 75% of their income on, on food. So any significant change in food prices will further drive the poor towards cheaper and less nutritious food and just exacerbate those malnutrition rates that we know are already high. 
We also know that the existing gender inequalities are leading women and girls to eat least and last. And all of this disproportionately deepens their hunger, their malnutrition, their poverty rates. So the issue of high food prices, excessive volatility of food prices, high food price inflation, these are the ones that define the fundamental relationship between a farmer and a consumer. We know that low prices or excessive volatility of market prices will discourage long-term investments by farmers. We don't want that. On the other hand, high market prices are unaffordable for consumers and, and drive further poverty and malnutrition. So we don't want that either. And the food price inflation that we're all facing right now is a common challenge in developed countries and developing countries. So fundamentally, our production of food is not meeting our population growth. And the complexity of this problem requires sustainable intensification of agriculture. Right, Nikita. I totally agree. These are issues that should keep all of us up at night. And this leads me to my second major challenge, this the sustainability challenge. And this is a really daunting one. I think there's two problems here that are very difficult to address. The first is that we've not yet figured out how to decouple global agricultural production from nitrogen fertilizer. The world needs to use natural gas, fossil fuels, to maintain current production of world calories. Right? There's still not a perfect pathway to net zero agriculture. You know, we need to pollute to feed ourselves. The other challenge is how to apply all these solutions in a way that makes sense for farmers. We need to move away from promoting best practices towards promoting a set of best fit solutions that best fit the resource and the capacity needs of each and every farmer. We know that agri-food systems are complex and there will not be a unique best practice that solves the complexity of all these issues. Therefore, it's important that we adopt um, outcome-based models of agriculture. And these outcome-based models present a diversity of solutions that can be adapted by farmers for their own perspectives and for their own resource constraints and realities. Now, common across most of these is the issue of good soils. There's always consensus on good soil fertility and good soil health. It's not a controversial issue. So I think we need to ensure that each and every farmer has the ability to deliver the best set of outcomes for food, for nutrition, for income, for jobs, for resilience, for biodiversity, for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We're asking a lot out of agriculture and out of farmers, and we need to provide them with a set of solutions. So you mentioned the food prices and the sustainable intensification as these two main critical issues that you see. And on this note, what are Canada's development priorities in agriculture, rural development, and food systems? As many people know, the feminist international assistance policy is Canada's principal international development policy framework. Under FIAP, promoting gender equality and women's empowerment are the principal objectives of Canada's international development assistance. Now, in agriculture and food systems, our work promotes the implementation of gender-sensitive policies and approaches that support women's rights and empowerment. Canada tries to embrace a, a food systems approach to improve how our development assistance addresses this complexity of development challenges. And, and this approach uh, takes into consideration uh, also inclusion and equity objectives and really has a particular focus on vulnerable groups. We're working to strengthen the resilience of these 
vulnerable populations and the resilience of the agri-food systems on which they depend so that they can be better prepared for future climate shocks, agronomic shocks like plant disease outbreaks, or economic trade disruptions or conflicts. Now, you've been involved with the donor platform for quite a long time now. So how has the donor community evolved over the course of your career? What do you think remains the biggest challenge and what has the most potential for better donor dialogue and collaboration in the future? Biggest challenge over the past 15 years or the biggest change has been a shift towards multi-stakeholder partnerships. We've seen a greater diversity of development actors come together to advocate for a common issue. And these partnerships do add a lot of value in bringing a diversity of perspectives. And I think more importantly, creating a whole of society momentum behind an issue. However, they're not without their own challenges. But I think the Global Donor Platform has always provided an excellent venue to bring donors and, and its partners together for challenging policy dialogues. And so I think this remains a relevant task and function of the platform. Another a second major change we've seen is one of scope. And increasingly, we're seeing less distinction between a global issue and a development issue. And the pandemic and the war in Ukraine are two great examples of global challenges affecting both developed and developing countries and requiring solutions that involve international actors across the globe. Thank you so much, Nikita. And, and very interesting to see how this, hear from you, how this space has evolved over the past years. Now, if there's one message that you would like our listeners to walk away with, what would it be and why? Food is at the center of many serious challenges of our time, whether it's climate change, hunger, poverty, gender equality. Food systems are, are a different yet a very powerful way to view how we as society are organized. It's more than just agriculture or value chains, but includes broader set of economic and social activities that define how we live and, and, and more importantly, how we as a human species consume resources for our daily survival. We are all guilty of creating new policy constructs to communicate a new message, to promote a new areas of working. We've created climate smart agriculture, gender transformative approaches in agriculture, nature-based solutions. But in each of these policy constructs, we have to remember that at the field level, the principal beneficiary of our work is the farmer, the crop or livestock farmer, the forester or the fisher. But essentially at the root of all of our work is the farmer. So whether we work in agriculture or rural development or in other sectors like environment, climate change, health. I think using a food systems approach will help us better appreciate the perspectives and the needs of farmers and ultimately um, appreciate the principal beneficiary who has so much impact on the rest of the development landscape. Absolutely. This was Nikita Erickson-Hamill, Deputy Director of Agriculture and Food Systems for Global Affairs Canada. Thank you so much, Nikita. That was Nikita Erickson-Hamill with our reporter, Monique Amar. Canada is a founding member of IFAD, a top donor to the fund, and is strongly engaged in the governance of IFAD, as well as being an active member of the Global Donor Platform. 
And to find out more about the Platform for Rural Development, go to www.donorplatform.org. And to find out more about the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development, go to www.donorplatform.org. And that brings us to the end of episode 45. Thanks, as always, to our producer here in Rome, the one and only Francesco Manetti. And also a big shout-out to our roaming reporter, Noor Bonner. And also we send our best to Michelle Tang, who couldn't make it to co-host with me this month, but she should be back next month. But most of all, as always, thanks to you for listening to episode 45 of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. In next month's episode 46, we're heading off to find out more about the power of remittances. That's when people send money home. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and the issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcasts at ifad.org and send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of July with more news fresh from the farm and once again we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson, and the team here at IFAD, thanks for listening. <laughs>